Chapter Two of The Orphan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Orphan by Lawrence E. Mulford. Chapter Two Concerning an Arrow. The bleak foreground of gray soil, covered with drifts of alkali and sand, was studded with clumps of mesquite and cacti, and occasional tufts of sunburned grass, dusty and somber, while a few sagebrush blended their leaves to the predominating color. Back of this was a near horizon to the north and east, brought near by the skyline of a low, undulating range of sandhills rising from the desert to meet a faded sky. The morning glow brought this skyline into sharp definition, as the dividing line between the darkness of the plain in the shadow of the range and the fast-increasing morning light. To the south and west the plain blended into the sky, and there was no horizon. Two trails met and crossed near a sand-buffeted boulder of lava-stone, which was huge, grotesque, and forbidding in its bulky indistinctness. The first of the trails ran north and south, and was faint but plainly discernible, being beaten a trifle below the level of the desert, and forming a depression which the winds alternately filled and emptied of dust. And its arrow-like directness, swerving neither to the right nor left, bespoke of the haste which urged the unfortunate traveller to have done with it as speedily as possible, since there was nothing alluring along its heat-cursed course to bid him tarry in his riding. There was yet another reason for haste, for the waterholes were over fifty miles apart, and in that country waterholes were more or less uncertain and doubtful as to being free from mineral poisons. On the occasions when the Apaches awoke to find that many of their young men were missing, and a proved warrior or two, this trail become weighted with possibilities, for this desert was the playground of war-parties an unlimited ante-room for the preliminaries to predatory pilgrimages, and the northern trail then partook of the nature of a huge wire over which played an alternating current, the potentials of which were the ranges at one end and the savagery and war-spirit of the painted tribes at the other, and the voltage was frequently deadly. The other trail, crossing the first at right angles, led eastward to the fertile valleys of the Canadian and Cimarron. Westward it spread out like the sticks of a fan to anywhere and nowhere, gradually resolving itself into the fainter and still more faint individual paths which fed it as single strands feed a rope. It lacked the directness of its intersector because of the impenetrable chaparrals which forced it to wander hither and yon. Neither was it as plain to the eye, for preference, except in cases of urgent necessity, forswore its saving of miles, and journeyed by the more circuitous southern trail, which wound beneath cottonwoods and motts of live oak, and frequently dipped beneath the waters of sluggish streams, the banks of which were fringed with willows. As a lean coyote loped past the point of intersection, a moving object suddenly topped the skyline of the southern end of the sandhills to the east, and sprang into sharp silhouette, paused for an instant on the edge of the range, and then, plunging down into the shadows at its base, rode rapidly toward the boulder. He was an Apache, and was magnificent in his proportions and the easy erectness of his poise. He glanced sharply about him, letting his gaze finally settle on the southern trail, 
and then, leaning over, he placed an object on the highest point of the rock. Wheeling abruptly, he galloped back over his trail, the rising wind setting diligently at work to cover the hoof-prints of his pony. He had no sooner dropped from sight over the hills than another figure began to be defined in the dim light, this time from the north. The newcomer rode at an easy canter and found small pleasure in the cloud of alkali dust which the wind kept at pace with him. His hat, the first visible sign of his calling, proclaimed him to be a cowboy, and when he had stopped at the boulder, his every possession endorsed the silent testimony of the hat. He was bronzed and self-reliant, some reason for the latter being suggested by the long-barreled rifle which swung from his right saddle-skirt and the pair of colts which lay along his thighs. He wore the usual blue flannel shirt, open at the throat, the regular silk kerchief about his neck, and the indispensable chaps, which were of angora goatskin. His boots were tight-fitting, with high heels and huge brass spurs projected therefrom. A forty-foot coil of rawhide hung from the pommel of his rocking-chair saddle, and a slicker was strapped behind the cantle. He glanced behind him as he drew rein, wondering when the sheriff would show himself, for he was being followed, of that he was certain. That was why he had ridden through so many chaparrals and doubled on his trail. He was now writing to describe a circle, the object being to get behind his pursuer and to do some hunting on his own account. As he started to continue on his way, his quick eyes espied something on the boulder which made him suddenly draw rein again. Glancing to the ground, he saw the tracks made by the Apache, and he peered intently along the eastern trail with his hand shading his eyes. The eyes were of a grayish-blue, hard and steely and cruel. They were calculating eyes, and never missed anything worth seeing. The fierce glare of the semi-tropical sun, which for many years had daily assaulted them, made it imperative that he squint from half-closed lids, and had given his face a malevolent look. And the characteristics promised by the eyes were endorsed by his jaw, which was square and firm-set, underlying thin, straight lips. But about his lips were graven lines so cynical and yet so humorous as to baffle an observer. Raising his canteen to his lips, he counted seven swallows, and then, letting it fall to his side, he picked up the object which had made him pause. There was no surprise in his face, for he never was surprised at anything. As he looked at the object, he remembered the rumors of the Apache war-dances and of fast-riding, paint-bedaubed hunting-parties. What had been rumor he now knew to be a fact and his face became even more cruel as he realized that he was playing tag with the sheriff in the very heart of the Apache playground, where death might lurk in any of the thorny covers which surrounded him on all sides. "'Apache war arrow,' he grunted. "'Now it sure beats the devil that me and the sheriff can't have a free rein to settle up our accounts. Somebody is always sticking their nose in my business,' he grumbled. Then he frowned at the arrow in his hand. That red on the head is blood," he murmured, noticing the salient points of the weapon. And that yellow hair means good scalping. The thong of leather spells plunder, and it was pointing to the east. The buck that brought it went back again, so this is to show his friends which way to ride. 
He was in a hurry, too, judging from the way he threw sand, and from them toe-prints. He hated Apaches vindictively, malevolently, with a single purpose and instinct, because of a little score he owed them. Once, when he had managed to rustle together a big herd of horses, and was within a day's ride of a ready market, a party of Apaches had ridden up in the night and made off with not only the stolen animals, but also with his own horse. This had lost him a neat sum, and had forced him to carry a forty-pound saddle, a bridle, and a rifle for two days under a merciless sun before he reached civilization. He did not thank them for not killing him, which they for some reason neglected to do. Apache stock was down very low with him, and he now had an opportunity to even the score. Then he thought of the sheriff, and swore. Finally he decided that he would just shoot that worthy as soon as he came within range, and so be free to play his lone hand against the race that had stolen his horses. His eyes twinkled at the game he was about to play, and he regarded the silent message and guide with a smile. "'If it's all the same to you, I'll just polish you up a bit.' And when he replaced it on the boulder, its former owner would not have known it to be the same weapon for its head was not red, but as bright as the friction of a handful of sand could make it. This destroyed its message of plentiful slaughter, and, he knew, would grieve his enemies. He touched it gently with his hand, and it swung at right angles to its former position, and now pointed northward and in the direction from which he expected the sheriff. "'It was de blanked nice of that Apache leaving me this.' but I reckon I'll switch them reinforcements. The sheriff will be some pleased to meet them," he said, grinning at the novelty of the situation. Nobody will even suspect how a lone puncher, for he regarded himself as a cowman, squaring up a couple of scores, went and saved the eastern valleys from more devilment. If the war-whoops are out along the Cimarron and Canadian, they're sure having fun enough to give me a little but I would like to see the sheriff's face when he bumps into the little party I'm sending his way. Wonder how many he will get before he goes under." Then he again took up the arrow and carefully removed the hair and thong of leather, chuckling at the tale of woe the denuded weapon would tell, after which he placed it as before, wishing he knew how to indicate that the Apaches had been wiped out. He rode to a chaparral which lay three hundred yards to the southeast of him, and thence around it to the far side, where he dismounted and fastened his horse to the empty air by simply allowing the reins to hang down in front of the animal's eyes. The pony knew many things about ropes and straps, and what it knew, it knew well. Nothing short of dynamite would have moved it while the reins dangled before its eyes. Its master slowly returned to the boulder where he set to work to cover his tracks with dust, for although the shifting sand was doing this for him, it was not doing it fast enough to suit him. When he had assured himself that he had performed his task in a thoroughly workmanlike manner, he returned to his horse, and finally found a snug place of concealment for it and himself. First bandaging its eyes so that it would not whinny at the approach of other horses, he searched his pockets, and finally brought to light a pack of greasy playing-cards, with which he amused himself at solitaire, diligently keeping his eyes on both ends of the heavier trail. 
his intermittent scrutiny was finally rewarded by a cloud of dust which steadily grew larger on the southern horizon, and soon revealed the character of the riders who made it. As they drew near to him, his implacable hatred caused him to pick up his rifle, but he let it slide from him as he counted the number of the approaching party, before which was being driven a herd of horses, which were intended to be placed as relays for the main force. Two, five, eight, eleven, sixteen, twenty, twenty-four, twenty-seven, he muttered, carefully settling himself more comfortably. He could distinguish the war-paint on the reddish-brown colored bodies, and he smiled at what was in store for them. "'I reckon I won't get gay with no twenty-seven Apaches,' he muttered. "'I can wait all right.' Upon reaching the rock, the leaders of the band glanced at the arrow, excitedly exchanged monosyllables and set off to the north at a hard gallop, being followed by the others. As he expected, they were Apaches, which meant that of all Red Raiders they were the most proficient. They were human hyenas with rare intelligence for war, and a most aggravating way of not being where one would expect them to be, as army officers will testify. Besides, an Apache war-party did not appear to have stomachs, and so traveled faster and farther than the cavalry which so often pursued them. The watcher chuckled softly at the success of his stratagem, and, suddenly arising, went carefully around the chaparral until he could see the fast-vanishing braves. Waiting until they had disappeared over the northern end of the crescent-shaped range of hills, he hurried to the boulder and again picked up the arrow. "'Huh! Didn't take it with him, eh?' he soliloquized. "'Well, that means that there's more coming. So I'll just send the next batch plumb west. They'll be some pleased to explore this godforsaken desert some extensive.' Grinning joyously, he replaced the weapon with its head pointing westward and then looked anxiously at the tracks of the party which had just passed. Deciding that the wind would effectually cover them in an hour at most, he returned to his hiding-place, taking care to cover his own tracks. Taking a chance on the second contingent going north was all right, but he didn't care to run the risk of having them write to him for explanations. Picking up the cards again, he shuffled them and suffered defeat after defeat, and finally announced his displeasure at the luck he was having. "'I never saw nothing like it,' he grumbled petulantly. "'Reckon I'll hit up the old thirteen a few beginning a new game. He had whiled away an hour and a half, and as he stretched himself his uneasy eyes discovered another cloud on the southern horizon, which was smaller than the first. He placed the six of hearts on the five of hearts, ruffled the pack, and then put the cards down and took up his rifle, watching the cloud closely. He was soon able to count seven warriors who were driving another cavalle of horses. Huh! Only seven, he grunted shifting his rifle for action. The fighting lust swept over him, but he choked it down and idly fingered the hammer of the gun. Nope, I reckon not. Seven husky Apaches are too much for one man to go out of his way to fight. Now if the sheriff was only with me, he grinned at the humor of it, we might cut loose and heave lead. But since he ain't, this is where I don't chip in. I'll wait a while for they'll sure come back." 
the seven warriors went through almost the same actions which their predecessors had gone through, and great excitement prevailed among them. The leaders pointed to the very faint tracks which led northward and debated vehemently. But the two small stones which held the arrow securely in its position against the possibility of the wind shifting it could not be doubted, and after a few minutes had passed they rode as bidden, leaving one of their number on guard at the boulder. Soon the other six were lost to sight among the chaparrals to the west, and the guard sat stolidly under the blazing sun. The dispatcher noted the position of a shadow thrown on the sand by a cactus, and laughed silently as he fingered his rifle. He could not think out the game. Try as he would, he could find no really good excuse for the placing of the guard, although many presented themselves to be finally cast aside. But the fact was enough, and when the moving shadow gave assurance that nearly an hour had passed since the departure of the guard's companions, the man with the grudge cautiously arose on one knee. After examining the contents of his rifle, he brought it slowly to his shoulder. A quick, calculating glance told him that the range was slightly over three hundred yards, and he altered the elevation of the rear sights accordingly. After a pause, during which he gauged the strength and velocity of the northern wind, he dropped his cheek against the walnut stock of the weapon. The echoless report rang out flatly, and a sudden gust of hot wind whipped the ragged gray smoke cloud into the chaparral, where it lay close to the ground and spread out like a miniature fog. As the smoke cleared away, a second cartridge, inserted deftly and quickly, sent another cloud of smoke into the chaparral and the marksman arose to his feet, mechanically reloading his gun. The second shot was for the guard's horse, for it would be unnecessarily perilous to risk its rejoining the departed braves, which it very probably would do if allowed to escape. Dropping his rifle into the hollow of his arm, he walked swiftly toward the fallen Indian, hoping that there would be no more war-parties, for he had now made signs which the most stupid Apache could not fail to note and understand. The dead guard could be hidden, and by the use of his own horse and rope he could drag the carcass of the animal into the chaparral and out of sight. But the trail which would be left in the loose sand would be too deep and wide to be covered. He had crossed the Rubicon, must stand or fall by the step. The Indian had fallen forward against the boulder and had slid down on its side, landing on his head and shoulders, in which grotesque position the rock supported him. One glance assured the cowman that his aim had been good, and another told him that he had to fear the arrival of no more war-parties, for the arrow was gone. He was not satisfied, however, until he had made a good search for it, thinking that it might have been displaced by the fall of the Apache. He lifted the body of the dead warrior in his arms and flung it across the apex of the boulder, face up and balanced nicely, the head pointing to the north. Then he looked for the arrow on the sand where the body had rested, but it was not to be found. A sardonic grin flitted across his face as he secured the weapons of the late guard, which were a heavy Colt's revolver and a late-patterned Winchester repeater. Taking the cartridges from his body, he stood up triumphant. He now had what he needed to meet the smaller body of Indians on their return, ten shots in one rifle and a spare Colt's. "'One from my cavier,' 
he muttered savagely, as he thought of the loss of his horse-herd. There'll be more, too, before I get through, or my name's not— He paused abruptly, hearing hoof-beats made by a galloping horse over a stretch of hard soil which lay to the east of him. Leaping quickly behind the boulder, he leveled his own rifle across the body of the guard, and peered intently toward the east, wondering if the advancing horseman would be the sheriff or another Apache. The hoofbeats came rapidly nearer, and another courier turned the corner of the chaparral and went no further. Again a second shot took care of the horse, and the marksman strode to his second victim, from whose body and horse he took another Winchester and Colt. "'Now I am in for it,' he muttered as he looked down at the warrior. "'This is sure getting warm, and it'll be a de blank sight warmer if his friends get anxious about him and hunt him up. Glancing around the horizon and seeing no signs of an interruption, he slung the body across his shoulders and staggered with it to the boulder, where he heaved and pushed it across the body of the first Apache. "'Might as well make a good showing, make them mad, for I can't very well hide you and the cayuses. I ain't no graveyard,' he said, stepping back to look at his work. He felt no remorse, for that was a sensation not yet awakened in his consciousness. He was elated at his success, joyous and catering to his love for fighting, for he would rather die fighting than live the round of years heavily monotonous with peace, and his only regret was having won by ambush. But in this, he told himself, there was need, for his hatred ordered him to kill as many as he could, and in any way possible. Knowing that he was, single-handed, attempting to outwit wily chiefs, and that he had before him a carnival of fighting, he would not have hesitated to make use of traps if they were at hand and could be used. Perhaps it was old Geronimo whose plans he was defeating, and if so, no precautions nor means were unjustified and too mean to make use of, for Geronimo was half-brother to the devil, and a genius for warfare and slaughter with a ferocity and cruelty cold-blooded and consummate. He had yet time to escape from his perilous position and meet the sheriff, if that worthy had eluded the first war-party. But his elation had the upper hand, and his brute courage was now blind to caution. He savagely decided that his matter with the sheriff could wait, and that he would take care of the war-parties first, since there was more honor in fighting against odds the two Winchesters and his own sharps, not to consider the four Colts, gave him many shots without having to waste time in reloading, and he drew assurance from the past that he placed his shots quickly and with precision. He could put up a magnificent fight in the chaparral, shifting his position after each shot, and he could hug the ground where the trunks of the vegetation were thickest, and would prove an effective barrier against random shots. His wits were keen his legs nimble, his eyesight and accuracy above doubt, and he had no cause to believe that his strategy was inferior to that of his foes. There would be no moon for two nights, and he could escape in the darkness if hunger and thirst should drive him out. Here he had struck, and here he would strike again and again, and if he fell he would leave behind him such a tale of fighting as had seldom been known before and it pleased his vanity to think of the amazement the story would call forth as it was recounted around the campfires and across the bars of a country larger than Europe. 
he did not realize that such a tale would die if he died and would never be known. His was the joy of a master of the game, a virile, fearless fighting machine, a man who had never failed in the playing of the many hands he had held in desperate games with death. He was not going to die. He was going to win and leave the dying for others. End of chapter 2